This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. The pivot to elections has distracted in some ways from the important task of building the biggest, broadest, and most effective movement possible. The social movement is the mechanism that preserves the interest of those outside of the corrupting and tranquilizing influence of electoral politics. The transformative power of the social movement is not just about its coercive influence in policymaking or the governing institutions of our country, generally speaking, but we must also consider the power of collective organizing and movements on ourselves. That's Kianga Yamata-Taylor. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Kianga Yamata-Taylor on the power of social movements. One of the techniques of ruling class control is to isolate people from one another. Look out for yourself is the constant drumbeat. We are reduced to self-centered consumers, not engaged and active citizens. Saul Alinsky suggests a different path. In his Rules for Radicals, he said, change comes from power, and power comes from organization. In order to act, people must get together. And that is happening. Popular movements such as Black Lives Matter, Hashtag Me Too, Extinction Rebellion, and Sunrise are shaking up the establishment finding kindred spirits and working collectively with allies not only has broader positive political consequences but helps to overcome negativity and feelings of loneliness and despair you look in the mirror and you feel good about yourself history has shown social movements can have a huge societal impact our guest today is kianga yamata taylor She's assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. Her articles appear in Counterpunch, In These Times, Jacobin, and The Guardian. She's the author of Rats, Riots, and Revolution, and From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. She spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in early September 2019. And now, Kianga Yamata-Taylor. I always like to say that I offer my um, words as a provocation um, in a friendly way. Provocation to think, um, not for provocation's sake. So I hope that is the spirit within which people think about what I'm talking about and the spirit within which we can have a conversation about some of these ideas, so I will get started. The autopsy report confirmed what her neighbor said happened in an apartment complex outside of Houston, Texas last May. Pamela Turner, a 44-year-old grandmother of three, sat on the ground trying to locate the humanity of the police officer who stood over her by screaming that she was pregnant. Officer Juan de la Cruz ignored her pleas, stepped back, unholstered his gun, and squeezed the trigger five times. Three bullets from his gun ripped through the body of Pamela Turner, ending her life. One bullet entered her left cheek, shattering her face. Another bullet tore through her left chest, and the last shredded her abdomen. Her life cut down by the police, manner of death, homicide. What happened after had been well rehearsed many times. The police put De La Cruz on a mandatory three-day administrative paid leave. The family secured the services of civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump. The Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy. And a well-organized and well-attended demonstration forced the police to extend their comments beyond the typical talking points. Five years after the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, erupted in a spasm of black rage, rebellion, catharsis, 
Many thousand more have gone. Since 2014, police in the United States have killed more than 3,000 people, a quarter of them African-American. Five years later, do Black Lives Matter. Confronted by an array of internal and external obstacles, the movement has stalled even as a white supremacist rules from the perch of the White House. The murder of Mike Brown Jr. and the Ferguson uprising it inspired cracked open a period of evidence of the swelling disappointment with the Obama administration. But the Ferguson protest had fatally pierced the media narrative of racial progress assumed with the ascension of Barack Obama. In the weeks and months following the election of Obama in 2008, the question was, was, that, was whether or not the U.S. had become post-racial. It is hard to even believe such a discussion was possible, given that we have a white supremacist in the White House today. But many people mistook the symbolic value of having a black president with tangible, measurable progress made by the vast majority of black people. Residential segregation in the United States hides many of the harsh realities that working class and poor black people contend with on a daily basis. And while disproportionate rates of poverty and unemployment are always ready to be analyzed, the more pervasive reality that almost all poor and working class black communities exist under police occupation and police state-like conditions goes without comment. So while white people may have been shocked when Ferguson exploded, most African Americans knew it was just a matter of time. But especially for young black people, for whom the enormous contradiction between having mobilized and voted like they had never done before to deliver the, an election to a black president, yet Trayvon Martin was murdered in cold blood. Tamir Rice, a child shot down by police within a few seconds of their arrival to his location in a city park. One week earlier in Cleveland, Tanisha Anderson, unarmed and body slammed to the ground by the police, killing her. Eric Garner choked to death. John Crawford, 22 years old, standing in a Walmart, minding his own business, shot to death by police. Even as Barack Obama pined on endlessly about the greatness and uniqueness of the United States, a country he repeatedly said was the only one on earth where his story was possible, even as Obama embraced almost biblically the greatness of American freedom and democracy, black men, women, and children were being killed by those upsworn to uphold the laws of the United States. And the inability of anyone to meaningfully address these contradictions, how can this be the best place on earth when 12-year-old black boys are murdered by agents of the state, fueled a sense of a deep sense of anger and resentment but also perpetuated a sense of exclusion and marginality. Working class and poor African Americans lifted the cloak on police abuse and violence and exposed its connection to wider systemic flaws. Ferguson exposed how policing could be used to discipline, discipline black people generally with the threat of physical or economic violence. We learned that the Ferguson police and police throughout Missouri saw African-Americans arrest or punishment as a source of revenue to offset having to tax white people. The protests revealed how thousands of black people were entrapped by a system of legal fees and fines because they were seen as civically and socially disposable. In the eyes of the law and the legislators the law was beholden to, Black lives did not matter. They treated African Americans in ways that they could not get away with treating most white people. The heroism of Ferguson then was rooted in the ways they overcame the fear that had been instilled by the ruthless and racist treatment by police for generations. And in doing so, their protests, their uprising, generated an enormous sense of solidarity. The Ferguson Rebellion also showed us what real democracy could look like, 
when they refused to acquiesce to the chorus of liberal and Democratic Party operatives who told them to get off the streets. For them and for us, democracy would be forged in the freedom of the street, the street meetings, the night marches, the demonstrations themselves. But no movement continues because it should or even because its cause is righteous. The rise or fall of a movement is ultimately determined by a tricky calculus combining strategy, tactics, politics, moves, and counter-moves. The Black Lives Matter movement always faced two external challenges, not including the internal struggles that every movement must contend with. Externally, the movement had to endure the way its mere existence had become a rallying point for the consolidation of the varied strands of the white supremacists and white nationalists of the right. For the most visible activists, that meant dealing with credible death threats along with the more typical variety of racist, sexist, transphobic, and nationalist harassment on a daily basis. Early on, candidate Trump had made Black Lives Matter his enemy, declaring them to be terrorists and pledging his unwavering support to the police. And the FBI, true to its history, began surveilling black activists and inventing new political categories along the way to communicate what they had designated to be a hazard, what they referred to as black identity extremist. It wasn't surprising, but it was exhausting, and it could be scary. When Trump decided to make BLM the foil to his white supremacist candidacy by making naked appeals to law and order and aligning his campaign to the Blue Lives Matter hysteria, it put activists and organizations in the crosshairs. But what may have been even trickier to navigate was the way that the democratic political establishment sought to divide the movement between the so-called pragmatists and those who were rapidly radicalizing in the face of intransigent police brutality and misconduct. The Obama administration had a virtual open door policy when it came to the activists. Their strategy was to paint a picture where activity and busyness looked like progress. This meant having regular contact and periodic meetings with activists, empaneling a national policing commission, and empowering the Department of Justice to initiate investigations and compile reports on egregious police departments. And yet throughout this flurry of busyness, it was hard to grasp what was changing, where was the impact. These, the urgency with which the Democratic Party wanted to resolve these issues was so that liberals and progressives, including activists, could then turn their full attention to the 2016 election. And it meant that the liberal establishment was constantly posing questions concerning the motives, the structure, and demands of the movement in hopes of moving things along. Who are your leaders? Where are your demands? What are your demands? Give us a solution were some of the questions or accusations directed at the most visible leaders of the movement. Reflecting the influence of non-governmental organizations, efficiency, and measurable success method of organizing, there was an urgency in coming up with solutions or policy initiatives conceived of as real and measurable ways to confront the issues with policing. When some activists chafed at this particular framing, they were attacked as purists. For example, when an activist, a black woman from Chicago named Aslan Pulley, refused to go to a closed door meeting at the White House because she doubted the sincerity of the Obama administration, President Barack Obama personally called her out. Obama said, quote, you can't just keep on yelling at them, and you can't refuse to meet because that might compromise the purity of your position. The value of social movements and activism is to get you at the table, get you in the room, and then start trying to figure out how is this problem going to be solved. You then have a responsibility to prepare an agenda that is achievable 
that can institutionalize the changes you seek and to engage the other side. But for many activists, their thought process was more, was more complicated. To be sure, the Black Lives Matter movement was not uniform in its thinking strategies or tactics. And those divergent ideas about political objectives and the process through which the movement should arrive at those decisions were deeply contested within the movement. For some, they welcomed the seat at the most powerful table in the world, that of the White House. They welcomed the access and believed it meant they were going to get a hearing at the highest level. Brittany Packnett, who was active in St. Louis and Ferguson in 2014, explained why she and others did participate in this meeting with Obama. She wrote an article in The Guardian saying, quote, to gain the liberation we seek, there remain many critical moments for action, and we are wise not to limit the legitimate ones. Our fights will never be won at the policy table alone. Protesters assume, assume risk, build organic democratic accountability in the streets, and force organized tactics to take hold. Organizers mobilize the people with strategic and direct action to push systemic change in institutions and policies. Policymakers and institutional leaders are influenced by all manner of people continuing to mount pressure in every space possible to see lasting change. I believe this movement's collective varied work can and has moved mountains, but it will take every one of us and every tactic at our disposal to win the freedom we seek. For others, there were misgivings. Oslin Pulley, the working class black woman from Chicago that Obama personally chastised, had a vastly different vision of change compared to the one then offered by the president or even by Brittany Packnett. She wrote in her own open letter a response to his criticism saying, quote, I could not with any integrity participate in such a sham that would only serve to legitimize the false narrative that the government is working to end police brutality and the institutional racism that fuels it. For the increasing number of families fighting for justice and dignity for their kin slain by the police, I refuse to give its perpetuators and enablers political cover by making an appearance among them. We assert that true revolutionary and systemic change will ultimately only be brought forth by ordinary working people, students, and youth, organizing, marching, and taking power from the corrupt elites. The point here is not whether one of these points of view was more correct than the other. The reality is that all social movements are expressions of the deep desire for change or reform of the current situation. For Black Lives Matter, that could be expressed as the hope that the police would, quote, stop killing us. But ultimately, it was a movement to reform the status quo of policing. But what often happens in these movements is that through the course of events, movement participants begin to come to radically different conclusions about what their objectives should be. For many BLM activists, they begin to reach a conclusion that the police could not actually be reformed, which then put them into conflict with the reform nature of the movement itself. What turned into a bigger problem was the inability for the tension between reform and revolution, or more crudely, between body cameras or prison abolition, to find the space to be debated or worked out within the movement. All movements are confronted with existential debates concerning their viability and longevity. There are always crucial decisions to be made concerning their direction and the best route to get there. But without the opportunity and space to collectively assess, discuss, or even think about what the movement is or what it should be, those untended debates and conversations can corrode. But beyond the questions within the movement, Obama's intervention showed that much of the criticism was about curtailing the deepening radical conclusions many activists were reaching. This included calls for abolishing police, prisons, and demands for a massive redistribution of wealth and resources from the rich to the working class. In many ways, you could see how the Black Lives Matter movement 
contributed to the conditions that gave rise to the viability of Bernie Sanders' candidacy. And this was the real problem with the movement for the Democratic Party and their liberal supporters. In 1964, political activists and strategists Bayard Rustin argued that the civil rights movement and the new emergence of black rebellions in that year must be prepared to shift from what he described protests to politics. He argued, quote, it is clear that Negro needs cannot be satisfied unless we go beyond what has so far been placed on the agenda. How are these radical objectives to be achieved? The answer is so simple, deceptively so, through political power. We are challenged now to broaden our social vision to develop functional programs with concrete objectives. Rustin was suggesting that the shift into formal politics marked a sign of political maturity and offered an opportunity to deliver much more substantive change to black communities than protest alone could deliver. In many ways, this was a very reasonable proposition. Indeed, Rustin argued for this approach in 1964, and that was very much the trajectory of black politics that it evolved along. One could say that the election of Barack Obama in 2008 was the culmination of that strategy, from protests to a black president. But Obama scold and Pulley's response revealed more than just strategic loggerheads on the objectives of social movements. The Black Lives Matter movement also exposed deep and bitter divisions within black politics. And so while it was true that some of the rancor was evident of a generational divide that had come to emphasize the role of voting over activism as the most consequential way to transform black life in the U.S. As Obama said last year, voting is the most important political activity you can do with your life. It was also evidence of a deepening class division within black communities. Some activists chafed at the paternalism that flowed through the Obama administration, such as when he would rebuke black voters by claiming not to be black America's president, while simultaneously code switching into Ebonics to chastise African Americans to get the vote out. But it wasn't just Obama. His race antics were a bitter reminder of the ways that black elected officials often fattened themselves up munching at the trough of black votes, only to deliver very little other than themselves alone as tokens of alleged racial progress. But the reality was that in many cities, black mayors, black city council people, black police chiefs, and black police officers managed the inequality and oppressive conditions that ignited the Black Lives Matter movement locally. The brutal racism of Donald Trump's description of Baltimore as a rat-infested den where, quote, no human being wants to live, helped to obscure the ways that local and national black elected officials have betrayed many of their black constituents by way of institutional neglect and then relying on utterly brutal and sadistic police to manage the ensuing crisis. The young rebels in Baltimore did all they could to expose the brutal conditions that they lived under, but that was not enough. Indeed, the focus on electoral politics, especially coming out of Black Lives Matter, missed the way that the social movement itself, along with protests and demonstrations, have been fundamental to achieving what we consider to be progress in this country. You're listening to Kianga Yamata-Taylor on the power of social movements. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 triple four one nine seven seven that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or you can order online on our website alternative radio dot org that's alternative radio dot o r g in the nineteen sixties when African Americans were almost completely locked out of positions of power, it could make sense that the next step was electoral politics. But then and now, the pivot to elections has distracted, in some ways, from the important task of building the biggest, broadest, and most effective movement possible. The social movement is the mechanism 
that preserves the interest of those outside of the corrupting and tranquilizing influence of electoral politics. The transformative power of the social movement is not just about its coercive influence in policymaking or the governing institutions of our country, generally speaking, but we must also consider the power of collective organizing and movements on ourselves. The radical artist and critic John Berger in 1968 wrote of mass demonstrations, quote, theoretically, demonstrations are meant to reveal the strength of popular opinion or feeling. Theoretically, they are an appeal to the democratic conscience of the state. In this sense, Berger wrote, the numbers present at a protest are significant, not because of their impact on the state, but on those who participate. Quote, the importance of the numbers involved is to be found in the direct experience of those taking part in or sympathetically witnessing the demonstration. For them, the numbers cease to be numbers and become the evidence of their senses, their conclusions of their imagination. The larger the demonstration, the more powerful and immediate, visible, audible, tangible, a metaphor it becomes for their total collective strength. The point is that movements not only create the possibility of changing our material conditions, but by exerting the force of many upon the intransigence of the few, social movements can create arenas where we ourselves can be transformed. The mass movement breaks us from the isolation of everyday life. In this society that deifies the lie of rugged individualism, an idea that wrongly attributes our successes to our personal ingenuity and blames our failures on personal weaknesses and defects, the mass movement, that arena of struggle, brings us together to share in our failure and show our connection and relationship to each other. The prevailing ideas in our society reinforce the sense of fragmentation and disconnection, but struggle shows what we have in common, and it pierces the prevailing common sense about our society. What you see is not what you get, and we have to challenge the simple narratives fed to us that are intended to make sense in some ways simplify the world that we live in. The black radical feminist and organizer Ella Baker understood this. She wrote that if we are serious about transforming society, then we must understand society. And if we are to understand society, we must look more deeply and not accept at face value what we are told to be true. She said in 1969, quote, in order for us as poor and oppressed people to become a part of a society that is meaningful, the system under which we now exist has to be radically changed. This means that we are going to have to learn to think in radical terms. And I use the term radical in its original meaning, getting down to and understanding the root cause. It means facing a system that does not lend itself to your needs and devising means by which you change that system. Black Lives Matter has opened this possibility, but raised more questions. What does the shattered face of Pamela Turner, exploded by a policeman's, po policeman's bullet, tell us about the efforts of the Black Lives Matter movement? It tells us how absolutely central policing is to maintaining the racist, sexist, unequal status quo. Police unions and elected officials like to portray policing as dangerous, as some kind of bizarre last line of defense between us and a murky, menacing criminal element or simple disorder out there. In reality, most policing involves surveilling and harassing poor and working class people. When black and brown people are overrepresented among the ranks of the poor and working class, these people bear the brunt of encounters with police. Being killed by the police is a leading cause of death for young black men. Sociologist Frank Edwards has said that young black men have, quote, better odds of being killed by police than winning a lot of scratch-off lottery games. Pamela Turner, who suffered from schizophrenia, was in the crosshairs of the local police because of several minor infractions that brought them together. Last April, when she was served with an eviction notice that resulted in a charge of criminal mischief and an encounter 
with the same cop who would eventually kill her weeks later. Policing is the last public sector service that our government employs as it defunds and neglects all other aspects of the civic infrastructure. As public institutions across the country are denuded, hundreds of millions of dollars are unearthed almost miraculously to pay off claims of police brutality and police murder lawsuits. The city of Chicago alone has spent over $800 million since 2004 to settle lawsuits for police brutality and wrongful death cases. The NYPD has averaged $100 million settlements for police brutality and wrongful death lawsuits a year over the last decade, adding up to a billion dollars. Last year, New York City paid $232 million to settle claims. And in 2017, they paid $302 million. From 2010 to 2016, in the 10 largest American cities, there was a 48% increase in the dollar amount, up to $248 million, to settle lawsuits or satisfy court judgment in police misconduct cases. If any other public institution incurred that kind of expense or debt, its budget and service would be shrunk and it would be shut down. In 2012, when the Chicago Board of Education claimed it was running a billion-dollar deficit, its solution was to close 52 public schools. It was the largest school closure in American history. But in the midst of a scandal involving the mayor's office, the Chicago mayor's office, Rahm Emanuel's attempt to cover up the details that pointed to mis police misconduct in the murder of Laquan McDonald, he received the blessing of most of the Chicago City Council to break ground on a new $95 million police academy. No matter how corrupt, violent, or racist police are, their budgets will never shrink. Elected officials and the rich and powerful whose interests they often represent know that as public expenditures get cut, as good jobs with benefits get further out of reach, police abuse and violence brings order to what could become an untenable situation. The pain and suffering of Pamela Turner's grandchildren or Laquan McDonald's mother or Mike Brown Jr.'s mother and father are collateral damage in this war to maintain the status quo. It is literally the price of doing business. It means that five years later, much of the institutional discussion about police reform then remains focused on bad apples, implicit bias, and better training. There is no quick fix to police brutality. It is so difficult to fight because the bipartisan political establishment needs it, especially when the political establishment decides it has nothing left to give the public. It took five long and deadly years for the officials who allegedly managed the New York City Police Department to fire the cop who choked the life out of a man who plainly said, I can't breathe, 11 times on camera. It took five years for the Department of Justice to decide that it would not bring federal civil rights charges against Daniel Pantaleo as if his illegal chokehold that took Eric Garner's life was not the textbook definition of a civil rights violation. In the wake of such obvious and willful flouting of one's individual right to life to live freely in the name of protecting the, quote, rule of law, the ways in which the law itself reflect what is valued by the elite while ignoring what is valued by most of us is exposed. In other words, the inherent malleability of the law recognized and saw Pantaleo while it simultaneously obliterated Eric Garner. That neither the law nor law enforcement is on our side ultimately makes the movement to reform either extremely difficult. It is usually the case, then, that we get the kind of change we desire when we pressure, coerce the political class, their establishment, their laws, to see and hear us. 
And to do that, it matters how we organize, what we think, what we demand, what we imagine and hope for. In some ways, these are key values for any social movement. Democracy, where we all see our aspirations, our failures and endeavors as entwined, connected, means trying to bring in as many as possible and figuring out how to make it work. Black lives can matter, but it will demand a struggle not only to change the police, but to change the world that relies on police to manage the unequal distribution of the things that we need to survive. Black Lives Matter as a movement has exposed police brutality as something deeper and more pernicious in American society. But it has also emboldened a generation of young people to want and demand more. And we have to use it as an opportunity to see how the racism that allows the existence of violent and abusive policing also allows for the subjugation of undocumented immigrants who in turn are subjected to a kind of violent and abusive policing at the border and throughout this country. The billions of dollars dedicated to policing social crises should compel us to ask whether this money could be spent creating a more equitable society. The best of the black radical tradition has always understood that black liberation, the notion that black people can live free of physical, economic, and social coercion cannot be achieved within capitalism. The dialectic of reform and revolution cannot be unleashed by privileging one above the other, however. Instead, the fight for our daily lives is a precondition for imag imagining a different world altogether. Black Lives Matter as a belief, an utterance, a collective chant, and a possibility is an example of this. From Ferguson to the Baltimore Rebellion, the commitment, solidarity, and struggles of young black people provided a glimpse of freedom to those living under the policeman's boot for their entire lives. But those struggles are only the beginning. The Black Women's Manifesto, published in 1970 by the Third World Women's Alliance, described how we can go from the struggle of one to the struggles of many. Quote, the new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of those persons who are presently most oppressed. Unless women in any enslaved nation are completely liberated, the change cannot really be called a revolution. A people's revolution that engages the participation of every member of the community, including men and women, brings about a certain transformation in the participants as a result of this participation. Once you have caught a glimpse of freedom or tasted a bit of self-determination, you can't go back to old routines that were established under a racist capitalist regime. Another world is possible, but we are the only ones who can create it. No one is coming to save us. We must join together to save ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much. BLM is the strongest and most honorable movement of my, of my adult lifetime. How has it inspired similar movements in other countries? That's such a weirdly American question. Just, I mean, the, in some ways, the U.S. is the center of the universe for all of the most heinous and terrible uh, reasons. But there are very specific situations, examples you can look to where Black Lives Matter has been a touchstone for other oppressed black people in other places whether it's Canada, in Brazil, I was in Spain last summer, and the Senegalese refu refugees, who are the, the, a big group of the migrants who take dangerous means through the Mediterranean to get to Spain and are terribly oppressed because they can't get proper documentation and have to resort to all kinds of makeshift employment. I was in Pamplona and um, a Senegalese merchant, street merchant, had been killed by police. And among that 
immigrant community were trying to organize a protest and then the Spanish activists there weren't really sure how they could connect both communities. And they connected around a banner that said Black Lives Matter in the central square the old, of the old city in Pamplona. And so, you know, there are examples you can point to where the movement here, and because the U.S. absorbs so much space, that things that happen here get a much further, get a much further reach. But I was also sure to tell people, you know, Americans have a lot to learn from the struggles that go on outside of, of this country. And so I think instead of thinking of what happens here may have inspired people elsewhere, I mean, sometimes that fits, but I think we should also pay attention to what this country does to other places and other people and what we can learn from the struggles that happen around the world. Clearly, there is a lot of work that we have to do uh, that's ahead of us. What do you think that the white people could or should do, both at a sort of individual level and what is it we should push for in terms of policy? And more specifically, what do you think about restitution? I, I'm for reparations. Um, there's so much historical and, and contemporary evidence, paper trails of the ways that black communities have been plundered, of the ways that black people have been exploited, and that exploitation has been to the benefit of others, that, you know, this is a, a, a country that gives almost a trillion dollars a year to the Department of Defense. Um, I think the U.S. has the money to try to repair some of the damage that its government and private institutions with the backing of this government have enacted on African Americans. So, you know, some people make that really complicated and to me the reparations is very straightforward. I don't know what white people should do. Um, <laughs> we need people in general, I think, who are aware that there is a problem that something has to happen to then do something. Often there's a recognition that there's something wrong and then a lack of action taken. And so I think that if there was less angst about what we should do and, and that, and that people act and get together with other people to act, that it would have an enormous impact on what happens in this country. And I, I do think that it's important not to see this as the ability to act as an act of altruism, that somehow for most white people in this country, everything's fine. And, you know, it's only if I have some kind of weird pang of consciousness, should I do something? That's not an accurate picture of what is happening for most people. You know, racism is black people's burden, but it's also white people's problem for most white people. The fact that this government spends $80 billion a year to maintain a criminal justice system, that it uses racism to do that, that is not great, <laughs> even, if you're, even if you're not a direct target of that. In some cases, black people are a quarter of the people that uh, the police kill. I mean, most of the people the police are killing are white people. That's, that's the, by far the majority of, of people uh, who are killed by the police. But beyond that, there's the issue of the lifespan for working class white people has gone into reverse. This does not happen in the developed world where your lifespan goes into reverse. And that reversal is driven by drug addiction, suicide, and alcoholism. And so, yes, I think there is a need to act, but that acting is not selflessness. You know, if we want to go through who is on the top and, and who is on the bottom, you can do that. But there is a, a reality that we have Congress 
In the Senate, the average wealth is $3 million. In the House, it's $990,000. And there's a billionaire as a president. Elsewhere, the median income for black families is like $47,000, which is hard to get your head around that people are living on that in the United States. And for white people, it's $60,000. You know, don't spend it all at once. Not everyone by any means is suffering in the, in the same way, but I think that we all have an interest in doing something about the plutocracy that is strangling most everyone else in this country. So to me, it's a question of what do we do to deal with this problem? How do we fight racism? How do we fight xenophobia and Islamophobia and anti-immigrant racism and all of this to actually be in a position to create a society where all of our lives have meaning. You know, that doesn't really exist right now. What do you think about the notion of an anti-capitalist party or a socialist party and what are your, um, what would be the Kiangi Maud Taylor uh, vanguard of the left, and what do you think of the notion of a vanguard at all, if that is? I don't know, what you think about I'm a socialist. I'm an anti-capitalist. I think that capitalism is destroying the planet. It's destroying our lives, and we need a mass movement, not just to deal with and respond to the daily attacks on people and just the daily struggle to get from the beginning of the week to the end of the week. I do think that is important, that we have to engage in political struggles that take up the day-to-day issues that people face, but that's not enough, that these problems that we experience in this country and around the world are problems of the market, and there's not a period in time where the market has actually produced an equitable distribution of resources In this country, that is most certainly true with the racially oppressed women and the most marginalized people in this country. Thus, I do think we need a party of socialists. And there is a a large one, right? The Democratic Socialists of America, which has grown to something like 60,000 people since the election of the white supremacists. And so that's one expression of that, a vanguard party. I think we're at the point, I'm at the point, where I'm interested in mass movements and mass struggles. I'm not interested in what a group of dozens, handfuls of people who have figured it all out but can't seem to convince anyone what they want to do. I'm interested in building a mass movement. Thank you, guys. That was Kianga Yamata-Taylor on the power of social movements. She spoke at Town Hall in Seattle. Kianga Yamata-Taylor is assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Vijay Prashad, Cornel West, Winona LaDuke, Nader Hashemi, and Bill McKibben. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Kianga Yamata-Taylor on the Power of Social Movements, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Ed Mays recorded the program. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. 
Roger, Hawaii, read you loud and clear also. 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 Roger,